Before Stonewall, there really was not a gay community. There was a bar community, and that changed the night of Stonewall. Back in those days, the American Psychiatric Association made it clear that we were mentally ill. In these bars, you felt like you'd be yourself. Outside in the street, you had to be careful and look over your shoulders. Before the 28th, there was no unity, but that would change within hours. The night was kind of stifling hot, and there was no breeze, and people were kind of like down because Judy Garland had just been buried. I came across a paddy wagon. I was on the side of it. As I got to the end of a paddy wagon, this queen kicked a cop in the shoulder and pushed him back. He jumped into the paddy wagon, and you heard bone and flesh against thin metal. We all grimaced, but she kicked him. And that was it. You don't kick a cop and expect there's no consequences. And I saw a brick crash into the window of the Stonewall Bar. Then more bricks and more bottles, more bricks and more bottles. The cops ran inside. And the ride was on. I remember I was going down the street about four or five days later, and it was very loud and very obvious. And there was a garbage truck packing garbage. And he glared at me, and I was very sorry I didn't change sides of the streets, because I didn't know what he meant. And he just raised his fist in a salute. From WNET in New York, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who make it all happen. 50 years ago, the summer of 1969 provided several watershed moments in American history. In June, the Stonewall Riots in New York's Greenwich Village helped propel the gay rights movement to a new level of national consciousness. In July, NASA achieved its goal of putting a man on the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And in August, at a muddy farm in upstate New York, Woodstock, forever changed the face and sound of American pop culture. This year, WNET is celebrating these events with an entire summer of special programs and projects. And today, we're going to meet Chris Chaika, WNET's Senior Director of Community Engagement, who has been coordinating this entire effort from the moon to Greenwich Village to Woodstock. How have you kept it all together, Chris? There was a lot going on in 1969. Welcome to WNET Up Next. Thank you very much, Tom. So how did this all happen, the idea to celebrate the summer of 1969 here at WNET? Well, over the course of the last few years, we've had several kind of station-wide celebrations that have happened over the summer. Mm -hmm. Back in 2015, I think it was, or 2016, we had the 13 Days of Harper Lee Festival, yes, which was a celebration of all things Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird in advance of the publication of Go Set a Watchman, the second Harper Lee novel. We got a lot of attention, we got a lot of audience, so that spurred other summer celebrations. Mm -hmm. Last summer, we were deeply, deeply embroiled in The Great American Read, and we were having events and on-air programs and every, lots of stuff going on online to encourage people to participate in The Great American Read. So this summer, as we were sort of looking for what's going on and what's coming up, the importance of the summer of 1969 really kind of bubbled up. Uh -huh. Earlier in the year, PBS had decided at the national level that they were really going to be highlighting the moon landing. But given WNET's proximity to some of the other seminal events of that summer, Stonewall and Woodstock, we thought that we could sort of open the iris a little bit and not just make it about commemorating the summer of space, but commemorating the entire summer of 1969. 
You know, I noticed that on our website there's a great uh, illustrated timeline that you guys have put together right. of, of the summer of 69. And just to point out that in addition to these events that you're talking about, surprising number of amazing things that, that happened that year. Just for example, the Who's Tommy came out that year. Uh, Hee Haw made its debut on television that year. The Manson Murders. And one that was very interesting to me, and you can't believe it's 50 years ago, but the first ATM machine Correct. was in the summer of 1969. Not Maybe not the summer, but in 1969. On Long Island. So, Chris, I, I described you earlier as the senior director of community engagement at 13. What, what does community engagement really mean? Well, community engagement is a relatively new department here at WNET. We came into existence about a year and a half ago. Formerly, I was in the education department, and as you know, Tom, for many, many, many years, the education department has been focused on reaching students and reaching their teachers and providing learning tools. Whereas community engagement is really about moving beyond our broadcasts and interacting directly with our community and, and the public that we serve. So one of the things we've, we've been saying of late is community engagement is all about putting the public back in public media. Mm-hmm. So we host community convenings and community screenings. We find different ways to get the public to interact with the content that we have on the air and the other projects that we have going on at the station. Now, these folks that sat for interviews, how did you find them? My colleague, Jasmine Wilson, spent about a month doing some detective work, tracking down people who were active participants in the Stonewall riots, people who had some sort of connection to the space program, people who either attended Woodstock or performed at Woodstock. Mm -hmm. The other bonus was we had no travel budget, so these people had to live in New York still. Uh, So Jasmine did a really terrific job of tracking people down, talking to them about coming in for an interview, and then getting them actually to come in. As you'll hear in the interviews and as you'll see in the spots online, we found some people with really compelling stories and really interesting connections to these three different events. The Stonewall anniversary was a tipping point that really set off the modern gay rights movement as we know it. There were previous acts of resistance within the gay community in the years preceding the Stonewall riots, but that event really set off something and provided a larger cultural awareness of the the need for rights for gay and lesbian people. As we found out from some of the folks we've been talking to, there was a real sense here in New York that the Stonewall riots sort of provided a glue that started to create a cohesive community of gays and lesbians Mm. in the city. And it provided, to a degree, a sense of pride and a sense of identity that this had happened. And one year later was the first Pride Parade. So it really set something in motion. And it's an event of national and worldwide significance. We're fortunate enough to have some witnesses to Stonewall that we're going to be hearing from in just a few minutes. Absolutely. Before we get to that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about our programming around Stonewall. So the the whole summer-long celebration has a variety of different components to it. There's going to be a wide array of on-air programming in June, obviously commemorating the Stonewall anniversary. In July, PBS has a huge lineup of programming related to the moon landing and the space program. And in August, there's a whole strand of programming focused on Woodstock. 
In addition, we've got on-air promos and interstitial spots that are going to be profiling different people and places related to these historic events. And on social media, there will be a whole campaign where people can reflect about their experiences during the summer of 69 or talk about what they feel like those events have done for our country and our culture. Excellent. We do have several veterans, I think I might call them, of Stonewall, or people who were either eyewitnesses or greatly affected by Stonewall. And a number recently came into our studios to reflect on Stonewall, and I think it would be a good time to hear from them now. First, let's listen to Martin Boyce, who was right there when the raid turned into a riot. In 1969, I was a student at Hunter College. I was studying history. Uh, so I was in college in the day and on the streets at night. So Stonewall was a bar that you would go to to show yourself. To uh, You had friends in there and you would just go in so people knew you were around. It was a very interesting bar. It was all types of gay people. It was sort of like a gay Noah's Ark. The two types of every kind of gay. We weren't a people yet. If there was a flood, we would have been safe for a generation. So it was just a, a bar in which we tolerated each other, and the degree of toleration was very strong. We didn't particularly like each other all the time. But this was a very, very important bar. The protocol for a raid, I mean, when you're on the other side of the coin, is the lights would go on and blink. Anybody dancing would stop dancing. Anybody too close to each other, but I mean naturally close to each other, just sitting down having a drink with a friend, not knowing if your legs are touching because it's a friend, or do you care? That had to be removed. You had to move away. Everybody had to find a space in which there was no bodily contact, no excuse for the police to start in on you. There was a commotion down near Stonewall, and a bunch of people rushing past me behind my back, and someone mentioned raid. And in those days, if you weren't in a raid, you'd go watch the raid. It was like a schadenfreude. You um, weren't caught, so now join the fun. I mean, and there was some fun. I mean, the drag queens to come out to cheers, and they couldn't care less. This is what we watched. We watched almost uh, without opposition the police do this to us and make us not only the victims but the spectators of the victims and make us squeeze out of life what we could, you know. But that night was very different. Uh, I came across a paddy wagon. I was on the side of it. As I got to the end of a paddy wagon, uh, this queen kicked a cop in the shoulder and pushed him back. He jumped into the paddy wagon, and you heard bone and flesh against thin metal. We all grimaced, but she kicked him. Uh, and that was it. You don't kick a cop and expect there's no consequences. Uh, that was my recollection of my section. We were in a semicircle around the bar. But there was enough provocation all around that semicircle to cause this commotion, and now into a blazing riot, and it was a blazing riot. There was not one shout of disapproval. Those spectators were unanimous in their support for us. Everyone knew the cops deserved this, and everyone let control go at that moment to, to fight. Before the 28th, there was no unity, no community. There was just a name given to us, and it was difficult in the sense that we were ignored officially, but vilified 10 to a dozen times a day on the street. And that was a horrible thing. After Stonewall, everything changed, but not immediately. It wasn't uh, an epiphany on the part of the police or the society or anything, but an opening was made. And Christopher Street was a beehive of activity. 
I don't think even after the Russian Revolution there could have been that much activity on one block with people, you know, trying to corner you into a position or opening up a position or little pamphlets or little homemade um, signs, all these things offering a group or offering some solace, offering some, some way of action uh, to harness this energy that no one could control and no one knew where it was going to go. I remember I was going down the street about four or five days later, and I was very loud and very obvious. And there was a garbage truck packing garbage, and I had a chance to go across the street because there was a man glaring at me, the sanitation guy who was throwing garbage bags into the back of the truck, and he glared at me, and I was very sorry I didn't change sides of the streets because I didn't know what he meant. And he just raised his fist in a salute. It was the first time I had a masculine greeting because, you see, what we did at Stonewall, I think we can realize now, is the first time in 2,500 years there was valor by a collective group of gay people, not Caesar or Alexander or the individual, but valor. And uh, those who write history, men who write history, and men respect valor. That was Stonewall veteran Martin Boyce. Another eyewitness to Stonewall was Tom McLaughlin. My name is Tom McLaughlin. In the summer of 69, I was living in Yonkers, New York with my parents. On the uh, night of Stonewall, I was at Julius's Bar, which is on Waverly and 10th, right around the corner from the Stonewall. Uh, I was having a few drinks with my friends, and someone came running in saying there was a riot on Waverly in front of the Stonewall Inn. We wanted to see what was happening, so we walked down Waverly Street to the corner of Christopher, saw, saw the crowd, saw what was happening, saw the huge police presence, and we, uh, right to myself, I said, you know, I'm teaching at Catholic high school, living with my parents. I'm not going to have my picture in the paper tomorrow. And uh, we took a cab uptown. And I went back to the village the next day and spent the day in the village. And there was, everyone was talking. Everybody was talking about the night before and tensions were building again. And the riot happened again that night. So I was there at the second night. I enjoyed being there. Uh, it was an empowering feeling and I, it was fun. It was terrifying and fun. Well, before Stonewall, there really was not a gay community. There was a bar community. You would meet people you knew in bars. Uh, that's how you got to meet gay people in bars. There was a, there were no organizations to go to. It was really a bar culture. And that changed the night of Stonewall. Not immediately, but within a year or two, there were organizations. There was PFLAG. There was the Gay Liberation Front. Within one, two, three years, suddenly you had gay teachers, you had gay doctors. It t changed totally. Suddenly there was a community where you could meet people where you didn't have to go down to Julius's, but you could go to organizational meetings. You could uh, you connect with people. The following year, I guess it was uh, Gay Liberation Front decided to commemorate Stonewall, and they had a march up 6th Avenue. Uh, this was the very first one. I was living at that time on 43rd Street, and so I, I'd already missed the beginning of the parade. I just walked over to 43rd and 6th and waited for it to arrive there. And uh, it was just simply people. There were signs, of course. There were a lot of signs, handmade signs. There was no marching band at that time. There were no floats at that time. There were no corporate sponsors at that time. It was simply people walking up 6th Avenue. And it was empowering. It was wonderful. And, of course, uh, I joined them. Once a friend came by, Timmy, and he said, get out of the street, into the, out of the closet, into the streets, I think was the chant then. And I went there and walked from 43rd to uh, Central Park. 
The following years, the parade grew. I'm not sure exactly what year, but I think it was 73. It could have been 72. We went down Fifth Avenue. And in uh, Fifth Avenue, at the end of Fifth Avenue, at Fifth, Fifth Avenue goes into Washington Square Park, and Bette Midler sang, you got to have friends on the stage there. And that was a memorable moment, really memorable moment. While Graham Davis was only 12 years old at the time of Stonewall, it proved to be very influential. Okay, hi, I'm Graham Davis. In the summer of 1969, I was 12 years old. <laughs> Just living my life, you know, I grew up in New York City, specifically Harlem, USA, born and reared, um, having a great time, but um, was very, very aware of the things that were going on in the village. In my area, we had a very good newspaper stand, and uh, they had all kinds of you know, regular papers, you know, daily news, posts, etc. But they also had Mad Magazine, The Village Voice, which allowed me to see what was going on uh, down in the village and how Stonewall kind of got started and the revolt that happened. It reminded me of the civil rights movement for African Americans, how we had to fight and resist, stand up for our rights. So hearing about the unrest that was going on, there were one or two individuals in my community, LGBTQ elders in my community. They kind of let us know, the neighborhood, what was going on. You didn't see, or let's say, you didn't know that there were any real LGBTQ individuals, even though there were a neighbor of mine who was very trans and was a neighbor and friend of my siblings. And we knew who he was. He was very out and flamboyant, the terms that we used back in those days. Yet there was another individual who was a lesbian and terms that they used back in those days, bull dagger, was very strong and tall. And she walked down the street with two big Doberman pinchers who, when I saw her, I was like, oh, I want to be like her. <laughs> As I was going through school and um, recognizing that this was really who I am, I recognized this when I was five years old, that women were the people, women were the gender that I was attracted to. But back in those days, the American Psychiatric Association made it clear that we were mentally ill. And this was something that you just did not go out and talked about. So you kept it quiet. I kept it quiet as I went through school. Uh, not so obvious unless it was someone who was close to me that I can talk to. But um, you just kind of stayed under the radar. There was a period in my life as I got older, teenager, where I knew that I was in the wrong body, that I was in a female body, but I was a person who felt that I needed to present myself as male. So did the research to find out what I can do. I had to go to Sweden. <laughs> Couldn't go to Sweden and have any money to go to Sweden to do any kind of changes. So I just, you know, I just continued to go on and pretty much, I guess, stay in the closet, so to speak, until it felt safe because we knew that people were being abused and uh, bullied 
if they knew you were gay. There was a period also in my life where I experienced having police officers come into the bars. When I was of age and can go to bars, we would whisper, oh, the cops are here, you know, be quiet, don't touch anybody, you know. So that persisted even in the late 70s, 80s, still persisted. It's very different now than it was before. There was a lot of struggle, and we're still struggling because the federal government is making a lot of reversing of laws that we had. And it's like we're going backwards now, you know, with what they're doing with trans people in the military. They're taking back all the rights that we've had, even elders, and I'm an elder myself now. Um, you know, we don't have the rights and the protections that we really, really need. So while it is a little better, it's not that, it's not complete yet. So we're still in a struggle. There's still the revolution going on. I think the most important thing is that we will not, we will not go back in the closet. We will not stop being who we are. There's no going back. We're just, you know, we're going to stand up for our rights. Whatever it takes, we're going to do it. That's Graham Davis speaking. And our final eyewitness to Stonewall is Victoria Cruz. My name is Victoria Cruz. I'm one of 11 children. I was born in the island formerly known as Borinquen, which is now known as Puerto Rico. And in the summer of 69, I was in transition, like you, you could say transition into from male to female, because I always felt that was in the wrong body and I always felt female. And um, I used to go to the village and just feel free there. Stonewall was a mixed bar. And uh, most gay bars at the time were kind of mixed because that's the only place that you can go and really relax and have a good time with your own kind. Stonewall just was just one of the bars which was often rated just like any other bar that was gay at the time. I usually frequent Stonewall every Friday or Saturday, plus my partner Frankie was the doorman at the Stonewall. He really didn't want me dressing up in drags. He says life would be much more safer for me if I dressed in male attire, but I didn't feel like it and I didn't want to. And he did meet me in drag, so what was the problem? The night of the Stonewall uprising or riots, I was in semi-drags, that means that I had makeup on my face, but I was dressed in dungarees and like a t-shirt. Frankie didn't come home and I was pissed off and I decided that after six o'clock, I was gonna go and see what the hell, where the hell he was. So I stood outside at 55 Christopher Street. I stood at that stoop where most people used to, you know, sit on the stoop there. And I waited for Frankie to come in around 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. And he came over to me and I told him where was he the night before. And, you know, we talked a while. He said to go home. I said, no, I want to see what's happening. <laughs> the night was kind of stifling hot and there was no breeze. And people were kind of like down because Judy Garland had just been buried. And uh, it, the atmosphere wasn't joyful at all, or it, there was no joy in the air at all. And people were going inside the bar and coming out, going outside the bar. I saw Sylvia on uh, Sheridan Square Park with some friends. And they went in the bar, they came back out. And then around 12.30, the cops showed up 
and they went inside the bar. There was some commotion inside the bar. I wasn't inside, but I heard the commotion inside. And then um, I was told that Stormy had jumped the cop and that they took four cops to get her off, off of the cop that uh, tried to have her step on some black beauty pills. And then Miss Majors came out into the paddy wagon. Stormy came out too. And then this lesbian who was kind of, you know, she was a little high, but she was combatant, and she got punched by the cop. And that's when the crowd that's already started gathering went up on an uproar, and I saw a brick flying and crash into the window of the Stonewall Bar. Then more bricks and more bottles, more bricks and more bottles. The cops ran inside and locked the door. People started banging on the door outside and they called for backup. But unfortunately, the sixth precinct didn't, didn't show up because they were on the books as uh, Brown Bag Friday, which was they went inside Friday nights and got a little brown bag with a little gift inside. And it took a while for recruits to show up. Once the recruits show up, they came with, with ride, ride gears. And um, it was kind of funny because I was sitting by the stoop and Frank says, let's go, it's getting hot. I says, no, I want to see what happens. And the cops started chasing us and we went up 7th Avenue, turned on 10th Street, a right turn, 10 again on Waverly, another right turn. And by the time we came back to Christopher Street, we made a circle, so now the cops chasing us, we were chasing the cops. And Frankie was illegal here. He said, look, I don't want to get arrested. I'll be sent back to uh, Canada. Let's go home. We went to 8th Street, took the F train, got off of Carroll Street, and walked down to Union Street where I lived. And we turned on the TV, and it was already on TV, the ride in the village. My advice to the younger generation is get yourself an education because that could never be taken away from you. Know your history, but an education is very important because once you're educated, they can't take that away from you. You've been listening to edited interviews with four veterans of Stonewall. Chris, we spoke about it briefly before, but I understand there's a strong social media presence supporting this as well. Can you fill us in on that? Sure. So there's going to be a lot going on on WNET's social media presences over the summer. First of all, all of the promotional spots that we did with people who were somehow involved with these three historic events, those are going to be repurposed for social media. So people who are not necessarily catching them on the air will be able to catch them on social media. And we're really hoping, at least I'm hoping, that some of those spots will go viral because they really are... You know, how often do you have an opportunity to hear a, a quick 30-second message from someone who is an active participant mm -hmm. in a historic event? We're also going to have polls commemorating the anniversaries of different major events of the summer of 1969. We're going to ask, be asking people about their favorite music from the era. So there will definitely be an element of audience engagement and community engagement as we ask people for their memories and their experiences and to really have a conversation with us about all of these different events and what they mean. This is really very exciting, and I hope that all of our listeners can latch on to all of these events and all of the outreach. And Chris, I know you've promised to be with me next time, and we'll focus a little bit more on the Apollo 11 launch, but do you have any final thoughts about Stonewall for us? 
Well, I think not just Stonewall, but all of the events. We have a great website set up at 13.org slash summer69, where there is a schedule of all the different programs that are going to be on the air and more information about everything we've got going on. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. We'll see you soon. I'd also like to thank Jasmine Wilson from Community Engagement, our editor, Samantha Lobo, our audio engineer, Josh Broom, and special thanks to Katie Young for her great interviews. And of course, thanks to our executive producer, Dana McBride. And thank you for listening. And please join us again soon for our next edition of WNET Up Next, when we will focus on Summer of Space and Apollo 11. You can share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org. And of course, please become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the design and on-air promotion department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart.